0: Welcome to the Talking Recruitment podcast from the REC. Every week we look at all the latest insights, perspectives, and experiences from across our diverse recruitment industry. Hello and welcome to this latest Talking Recruitment podcast with me, Kate Shoesmith. I'm Deputy Chief Exec at the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. So you might be missing Neil Carberry while he's taking a well-deserved break and I'm standing in for this particular episode. Um, It leads me to think about the month of August, which tends to be that month where we get to hopefully fit in some holidays and some downtime, but it's also a month where many businesses you start to reflect on the year we've had to date, how plans are progressing and how we often will be thinking about the year ahead and that business planning process cycle begins in earnest. So today's podcast aims to give everybody a bit of a head start on that process in what is undoubtedly an unprecedented market. The labour market rebound and the recovery continues, which is great news, particularly given some of the predictions that were made at the end of last year. I'm consistently hearing from recruiters how they are now busier than ever, which is so good to hear given the tough time we've been through. And if I think back to what we were facing 12 to 16 months ago. Our latest Jobs Outlook was published at the end of July, and it found that employer confidence in hiring was at an all-time high. And by the time this podcast is released, we will publish a report on jobs for the month of July, which will show that permanent placement rates and temporary billing has continued to show strong performance across all sectors. But staff availability is what's hindering the recruitment process now, and that's what's really hitting home. It was a recurring theme at our conference last month, where we explored strategies for business growth and supporting your people during these times. And the content for that event is now available in a digital playbook on our website, which is free for all members. And that brings us on to today's podcast. And I want to introduce our guest for today, Julia Ross. Julia was good enough to join us at Rec Live 21 um, the other month, and she was so good that we wanted to hear more, which is why she's with us today. Julia is an entrepreneur, founder, and managing director of her own brand and business empire, the Julia Ross Group. She has over 30 years of experience in recruitment, and her contributions to business has been regularly acknowledged by winning awards such as leading female entrepreneur, group business owner, Her success has also led her to be proclaimed as Australia's richest self-made woman, which is not bad for the last from Staffordshire. Julia, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, my
1: goodness. The last from Staffordshire feels very old with that um, amount of time working. Um, But I'm very lucky, very lucky that I've had a great career starting with a fabulous construction company, uh, Taylor Woodrow, and working with uh, Sir Frank Taylor, and then moving on to um, working with Alfred Marks with um, tremendous mentors, which, of course, now has morphed into a deco and um, is somewhat a a global giant, as we know. Um, And a lot of their... I guess service ethics um, are what brought me to where I am today. They were the foundation for what I then took um, to develop and improve on for myself.
0: Julia, that's fantastic. I think that's so interesting to hear, that that journey that uh, you've been on. I was really interested when I was reading a bit about you is that – One of the things that happened in your career journey, it appears, is that you often seem to take advantage of tough times. So I read that you started your own recruitment business, Julia Ross Recruitment, in the midst of quite a tough economic time. And in 2003, am I right about this, that there was a slump in the industry and that you took the opportunity to buy out your biggest competitor? So I wondered if you'd give us a sense of what it was like to set up a new business, or going through an MA process. Because I think for many people, they'll be experiencing those tough times right now, and what you learned from it.
1: Yeah, um, some of the things were planned in my career in terms of, um, you know, jumping on things when the opportunity occurred because of an economic um, situation, others were not. Um, opening the Um, the original heritage brand Julia Ross recruitment in 87 just after the biggest crash in certainly my lifetime um, was not um, a sort of contrived strategy, it was that I'd been working on going on my own for a while and um, you know made it quite complicated in as much as I'd just become pregnant with my um, son as well. So, um, a lot of adversity um, considering most of the recruiters were probably turning over 50% of what they had done in the prior year. So, to come into a market and think how am I going to dislodge other providers While I'm new, the new kid on the block, um, when clients were looking after their existing providers um, was a really hard call. So I guess it, it made me focus on how I was going to stand out and what was going to make clients stick to me. Because I think in recruitment, we often forget that we've got to be stickable to really create increased revenues if you just deal on a one-off basis you don't really get that um, fabulous growth that if you make your your clients stick to you Um, so i i set off in creating something that really snowballed from there i didn't realize what i was doing when i set out to create something different Where it would end up but we had to be truly different it was quite a similar market to what we're experiencing now i think from an emotional point of view both for our internal staff our candidates and our clients everyone was in quite a sense of turmoil because they'd been through the biggest crash ever i think since the original 20s crash or whenever it was, um, won't be quoted on that because I don't actually <laughs> you know my history um, perfectly. But um, I think we forget that our clients in particular and, and our candidates to a degree can be emotionally damaged through these times. Mm-hmm. The difference, I guess, at the moment is that we've strung, swung straight out of an economic downturn into a candidate short market. Um, which for me is, if I say treacherous, um, I suppose I mean it. I think mm. it's quite, quite a hard thing to go from one minute thinking, where on earth am I going to find clients from, to swinging into a candidate short. And it's not only candidate short in a normal, in the normal context. It's candidate short market where we have a large amount of the population who just do not want to go back to work. So that's quite a unique development, I think, um, that we've never experienced. Certainly I've never experienced it Mm. in my life.
0: Julia, has that made you change your approach to how you engage with clients then at all?
1: Well, I I think it's very difficult because um, we as the provider have got to keep our spirits high Um, Nobody wants us to be going along saying, oh, dear, it's a bad market, you know, we can't find people. Um, We have to be the strong um, person that says, well, um, I'm going to fix that for you. Um, A client wants reassuring. Not only do they want reassuring in this market, but they want to be made to feel better. I think it was probably watching things that Richard Branson did originally that made me think that if a candidate or a client whenever they touch you if they feel better for having touched you then they're going to come back to you because that feeling subconsciously is going to stay with them so if you reassure your client and candidates that you're going to be able to Resolve these issues, and by the way, do it in a way that makes them feel quite happy and takes the burden off them. And perhaps do some of the things that we did at those difficult times to start off with, in giving back to people and making them feel happy. Um, that's going to make you quite stickable from a client point of view, and is going to the clients going to not even probably consciously be aware that whenever they speak to you, they feel better, but they, if they do feel like that, there's no doubt about it, every time they want something resolved, they're going to come to you, and let's be mm-hmm. serious about it. We are in a solutions-driven industry. That's what we do. We solve problems. Absolutely. So, you know, we need to do that in a very positive and a very happy um way which is not easy sometimes i used to get out of the lift in the morning and just think okay put your shoulders back smile everyone's going to be watching you they're going to be seeing how fast you walk or how slow you walk and where your shoulders are and if you look
0: confident as managing director, I had to. So isn't it interesting um, that we make such personal judgments, don't we? I totally agree. Is there's something um I used to work with somebody who said they would never employ the candidate that walks slowly across the room to the interview room. That would be their cue. And you'd and you wonder now whether that would still be the mindset. But something you were just saying there um made me reflect that it feels very personal to you. So, how you're approaching that client and candidate um, engagement? You talk about stickiness. You know, making sure that they want to, they get something from it, and they come back to you, and that they feel happy in the approach. That feels very personal to you, Julia. That's that's something that comes from your brand. Is that is that right? And how do you how do you broaden that out so that other people in your business experience have the same experience? Or is it or does it remain that it's your responsibility as the business leader and the business owner?
1: I think the leader sets the tone and sets the culture. You know, if the leader hasn't got the passion and cannot um, show that passion externally and enlist people in the culture, then that it's never going to work. For me, we had a very tribal culture and people... Don't, I don't think do that enough now. I think tribal behavior is quite important. I don't think we think about, you know, what is our company song? If we go out, what is it that we always sing when we're together? I know these things sound, um, you know, silly in some ways, but they're not. Um, mm-hmm. From very early on in my career, if we'd had a good week and we were celebrating we would do the things that we did to celebrate you know whether it was running around to the shop to get some cream filled shoe buns or um we weren't allowed to drink on the premises so we put champagne in paper cups so <laughs> um the bosses wouldn't know um, but as a branch manager i knew you know that my team needed to celebrate And we needed to feel like we were unique. It was uh, an important part. I don't know how instinctively I knew to do that, but creating a tribal culture just seemed to come instinctive for me. Mm. Um, I guess I came from a part in the north that you mentioned, and I was the youngest of eight children. And on that basis, we probably were a tribe. Um, but, you know, I went much further from the company's point of view. And I think, you know, we all know the job we do is hard work, it's long hours, and you get a lot of disappointments. And when you get the wins, you want to really celebrate them. And, you know, having a tribal culture allows you to do that because you all know if you start singing New York, New York, or something, or whatever you choose as your, you know, song, you know that's all of you. It's the same as singing the national anthem or singing a football song. Um, it's your song, and you belong together as a culture.
0: Yeah, I I think I think if more companies thought about their song rather than what may not speak to people in terms of um, when they talk about culture and values and purpose and, you know, mission, that can feel quite abstract. But I think people can identify with a a song. I think that's a really great way of putting it.
1: We took it a lot further. You know, we wore black T-shirts and black skirts. Mm -hmm. You know, we looked like an ad agency, but if we were going on a client visit and we were doing a major pitch, the fact that there were maybe five of us walking together all in the same, it wasn't a uniform, but to us, we knew who we were. Um, You know, it it didn't look like a uniform, so to speak, to other people. But after a while, people would say, those are the Julia Ross girls, you know. Um, And to us, that was great that we would smile and, you know, if we had pitches, I, you know, we would put across the front of our T-shirts, we'd get special ones made for the pitch saying, you know, the future is clear, it's black and white. You, you and we together or something like that, we would print something over the front of them. So it was specific to that client. So the client would know we'd done that to come into their office and say
0: that to them. Did that approach change regionally at all? Because obviously you have experience of uh, working in a UK market, in Australia, Asia Pacific. Was there any differences in how you approached that culture and that tribe?
1: Um, interestingly, the only difference is on the receptible, the, the how receptive people are mm. in various parts of the world to latch on to that. I was very lucky because I'm a very strong character. So whether I was in Harcourt Street in Dublin, where my Irish team loved anything like that, they I don't know why the Irish are so inquisitive and so happy to just um, jump onto new ideas and be adaptable, but they are extremely adaptable. It seems to be something in their DNA. And whether it was there or whether I was in Hong Kong office where the people in Hong Kong could generally not work out what on earth I was going on about, but over a period of time they did. And over a period of time they sort of would laugh and understand what we were trying to achieve. And, you know, yes, their culture was much slower at jumping on To something they're not used to change, cultural change, fast cultural change. Um, So it took them a little bit longer, but everyone enjoys being part of something that they identify with. And they will get a lot more passionate about it if they own it. Mm. So everywhere in the world, even in Australia, Brisbane was always slightly more accepting than as you move down through sydney to melbourne melbourne is a more conservative culture so there's always different um take-ups and time frames and even individuals everyone some people can accept change rapidly other people have got to think about it for a minute watch everyone else singing or something and then think oh
0: Maybe I'll have a go <laughs> that that speaks really loudly to that point of um, understanding the context, understanding where you are how you as the recruiter provide a consultancy where you're the adaptable you're the one that um, molds yourself around the, uh, the service that's required to that particular client that brings on board that candidate and takes them on that journey so and and knowing that context is, also important. And and it leads me to wonder if there's been any sort of shift in that for you over time, whether you think that candidates, um, I don't know, um, acceptance and um, engagement with recruiters has changed over time at all.
1: I think the level of sophistication when I first um, sat down on those um, those awful days when I was facing you know, what looked like true disaster when the 87 crash hit. Um, you know, and I thought, what on earth have I done? You know, how have I given up my job to start to hit a crash and try and survive when everyone else basically is hanging on by their fingernails? I thought of things that my client would value. So if They had a situation that their switchboard operator went sick in the morning. I remember that um, Brook Street, I think it was Marjorie, that originally decided to have a minibus that went around London dropping temps off. And I thought, well, how can I do that without having to have a minibus? And I thought, well, there's no reason I can't bring all of my temporaries in and serve them breakfast. And then, when a client needs someone, I haven't got to ring someone at home and them get dressed and get on a bus and get into work. They're here, they're ready to go, they've had breakfast, and in five minutes they can be around the corner with the client. A client's definitely going to ring me in that situation, mm-hmm. not someone else that's going to take two or three hours to get the person in. So, they were simple value adds. That meant that that client would come to me, and I trademarked breakfast temps and bracket temps are under my trademark, and I, you know, thought of things like that that I could differentiate. I think now the difference is that there's more sophistication. We're dealing with a level of technology now that can resolve a lot of those things. Someone just gets pinged that they're needed in Blar Street at Blar time. Um, And it's a very different situation. Not always, some things, some of the original things still work, but I think it's the level of sophistication. So you might be talking more with a client about higher level service delivery. How can you onboard a candidate for them? You know, maybe you spend half a day in the client's environment onboarding, and I mean onboarding to a proper level, showing them how the client's system works, the rules around what they are and are not allowed to do on that system, the rules of that client maybe. There's a hell of a lot of value add that you can give to a client. There's a lot of things around, you know, attrition rates. How can you in Improve your client's employment brand so that you are always reinforcing to the workers how important it is to keep their job with that client. And, you know, can you do them a report at the ex- end of the month qualifying that what you did do, how you prevented fallout, how you helped to promote their brand by having you know, an employee evening on the client's premises or, you know, all sorts of different HR, you know, um, strategies that deliver true value to the client. I think that's the difference, that it's you've had to become more of an HR professional over time. Things were right. a little more simple.
0: Yeah. And we often talk about how recruitment is a consultancy service. And I think you're, you're amplifying that is that to think, if, if you're thinking in terms of um, stack them high, sell them cheap mentality, that those days are long gone. It, it's much more about that consultation piece. Um, I'm wondering about something else that's within your your business group, it, particularly, um, uh, I can see that you also, uh, part of the Julia Russ group offers managed service provision. How does that differ um, from your, I suppose, high street recruitment days, if I can compare them like that, um, and has and is there anything there that you'd say that's important in terms of running that managed service offering?
1: Well, over time, it became very obvious in um, Australia that the margins were being damaged. It it isn't so much a problem here in the UK. Um, There has been some margin erosion, but not to the degree that Asia sort of um, ANZ, um, they were very damaged margins. We had too many recruiters in too small a pond. And I had to think of what I was going to do to get up the value chain. So I then thought, well, let's take the whole problem out of the client's hands deliver it more efficiently and therefore the client is only paying the same sort of money and we're getting more margin so it's a win-win situation so my idea was to deliver managed services effectively so that um, everyone got a, a value out of it so whether it You know it might have meant moving a call center to a different part of the country or a different part of the world you know which was hated for a long time but it was fact of life it might have meant taking over a procedure or something that happened within an organization or it might have meant taking over a department or a floor or a building for an organization and saying you know let us run that I had an insurance company that turned over their whole organisation to me and said, "Okay, you run, you run HR, and you charges x million a year for the staff that you run." Um, you know, so that became a very profitable part of the group. In comparison to certainly, um, you know, temporary recruitment became very damaged. Um, temp margins. Um, And even permanent fees are damaged in that part of the world. So um, it was born out of, you know, having to deliver a service for the clients that was valuable, that delivered me a better result Mm. financially. And um, it took a lot of expertise. It takes a lot to say to a client, give me that and I'll run it for X amount of money for you, or I will deliver this for you at this, you know, if you're running a call centre for someone, you just take it over holus bolus, you've got to give them the service deliverables, how many minutes, quality of call, results of call, all the rest of the things, to take that on your shoulders and charge so much for the function is quite a responsibility, but that's what we did. Um, because it was
0: it was survival Mm. and it's interesting for me that when I hear you speak a lot of the decisions that are made in a business context they seem to be born out of adversity so you are in survival mode and you're finding the best path out of that and I find that interesting because I don't know if that's innate to being an entrepreneur, that you that you find the survival, you find the way through. Do you think that there's something about being entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit that gives you that edge? Um, I think for me, it's very
1: much, if you speak, there's elements of entrepreneurial spirit, isn't there? There's, it, it's fabulous to think up of a new idea. It's fabulous to think of a new way of doing things. It's fabulous to have a culture that touches people. It's fabulous to, you know, I hate to say it, but there was there was nothing that made me feel better than when I won a huge tender against all of the majors that um, lined up against me. Celebrate it. Don't um, be, that's all, great. <laughs> all of that is is fabulous. But there's also the sort of more serious aspects. If you have a business turning over, I mean, I listed on the stock exchange, so that brings a very different dimension to it. You cannot go back from a revenue point of view and you cannot go back from a profitability point of view. So you have to drive those strategies through to maintain turnover and profit. So very hard in cyclical markets to say, well, I'm going to deliver a level of profit that's expected of me and I'm going to keep my team employed whilst doing that. Because generally you have to try and do it with less people and you have to consistently try and drive, you know, the business for profit once you're listed on the stock exchange. Um, I don't like having to let people go. So I will always try and find a different avenue to protect the company and protect my people. So as well as the entrepreneurial aspect, I think I've always had a very great sense of commitment to my people. And, um, you know, I guess I'm very territorial I think one of my first bosses said, you know, you should lose a bit of that territorial part of you. It's not healthy, you know. Um, But for me, it's what makes me me because I am territorial. I like to win and I like my people to win. Um, I've had people start work with me at 18 and still be with me at 45, you know. Um, they start with me before they start their family and they're well into their family being grown up um you know so you have to protect people that are with you for those periods of time and that sort of organization that have people committed to it you have to have um, the respect and the commitment in return so a lot of those things were driven out of, those sort of reasons as well. Finding my people a secure landing through difficult times. And difficult times always make you stretch a lot harder. You know, every time we've gone through a downturn, we'd be sitting around the boardroom table with the senior management teams. Then what, what on earth are we going to come up with this time? Um, but you you come up with it. Good Um, organizations listen to everyone in the team and they come up with ways to drive through markets, whatever type of market. And there's never an optimal market in recruitment. You're either client short or candidate short. Um, It's very rarely perfect on both sides. So that's where we live. We're adaptable. We're flexible. We're, you know, we have to be like that it has to be in our dna that's who we are so you know for me that's that has to be
0: natural in
1: both you and your team
0: absolutely and um i and i like that phrase that it's you know being within your dna um i'm going to come on to our final question if i may um it's been so good listening to to your insight and wisdom on this but There's probably an awful lot of people out there that are wondering about whether it's time for them to to make the leap and whether they're thinking of setting up on their own or thinking of branching out and um, perhaps opening another desk, opening another office. Any words of wisdom, particularly thinking about those that may not see themselves as the typical business owner, they they might think that they don't look or sound like that average uh, entrepreneur, business leader. What would your advice be to them? I
1: think very early in my career, one of my um, good colleagues made a very important point to me. Um, they said you can do virtually anything wrong, um, but do not run out of cash. And I think it um, brought home to me that so long as you drive revenues and you, you work hard to do that, and that's profitable revenues, you can cover a lot of things going wrong. So um, I think it's very important to know if you feel confident that you are passionate about clients and that you can do the sort of things that it takes to, to own a candidate and a client. You have to be obsessed. If, if you're not obsessed and you're not passionate about the client, and that's both the client and the candidate, then you will never survive in your own business in this industry. I think you have to, if you're not watching LinkedIn to see what your client is saying and what's important to them, if they've got a problem with candidates who are starting for a week and dropping out or whether they're, you know, nowadays you can do an awful lot of seeing what dialogue's going on within your environment. If you're not trying to understand that, and think about how you can personally make their life better and deliver something fabulous to them, if you're not obsessed by that and you, you know, a lot of us have to go home because we have children or whatever it may be, if you're not obsessed that when you are home and the kids have gone to bed that you can't sit back down and say, hang on a minute, let me just think about how I'm going to do this tomorrow and you... It's all about tenacity. I believe it's all about hard work as well. You can be super, super intelligent, but our industry rewards hard work. I don't believe that you can sit back and think it's going to happen for you. It's an old concept, and people will say, oh, that's not true, but I don't believe it. If you say that it's a numbers game people say oh i don't believe that but i can tell you the more people that you speak to and the more people you do actively constructive beneficial things for the more successful you will be that's who we are and that's where we live Mm -hmm. if you take a vacancy and think In this next hour, this is the best time for me to fill this vacancy because this client emotionally is most concerned about what has just happened, that a valuable person has resigned in their organisation. They are at their more optimal point for me to fill this. If you don't feel like that and you're not going to feel in that first day that that's the most crucial time. If you're not going to feel by the second day, or I've only dropped down to 70% likelihood of filling it, and 50% by day three, blah, blah, blah. If you don't feel like that, then you won't win because someone else will put someone forward or they will find they don't really need that person as much as they thought. Someone will apply internally All the other things that can happen will happen. And it's up to you to make sure you are the most valuable answer at that most crucial moment. So for me, that's where it sits. You know, I, you know, have watched lots of people now that don't even think about turnaround time. They will take a vacancy and get around to it when they can. (laughs) And, you know, it's alien to me. I I don't believe in that. If someone trusts me with a piece of their business, I feel absolutely committed to earning that trust and continuing to earn that trust by doing the best possible thing I can to resolve their problem as fast as I can resolve
0: it. I think and that's that, such good advice. And it's uh, yeah, and it's it's one of the things that you talked very eloquently at the beginning of this podcast about that stickiness. If somebody feels that about you and can see your belief and your drive to deliver for them on then then you then you earn that trust.
1: Yeah, and if you can't do it, you go back to the client and you say, I'm having problems with this. Do you want me to suggest who else you could maybe place this with? You have to put the client front and centre in the position they need to be in, trusting you and valuing your advice. And, you know, they will always come back to you if you do that. You know, you can't fill every role every time, but you can be valuable to your client all of the time. Brilliant. And, you know, that to me is the most important thing that you can be valuable.
0: Juliet, thank you. There's, uh, there's so much in this that I think people can take away. So really thank you for your time. I think there's um, some of the gems for me are around how we create a company song and knowing your tribe and making sure that everybody feels part of that tribe. Um, one of the things that we're going to be doing as we come towards the end of this year is we'll be celebrating those successes at our REC awards. So if you haven't yet, please book your tables. It's going to be a great celebration, a long overdue one after a a year's gap. Um, Julia, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure. And uh, please join us again for our next Talking Recruitment podcast. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join me for another episode soon and check out our back catalogue at rec.uk.com to catch up on some other fantastic discussions that are really helpful for recruiters. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So subscribe to REC Podcasts to never miss an episode.